Welcome to uh, Prodigal Church, uh, David Week 2. Before we dive into our passage of Scripture this morning, I want to remind you and invite you to our Discover Prodigal that is immediately following this worship service. It'll be in the room directly right here. And at Discover Prodigal, if you're newer to the church or you've been for a while, but you have like some questions you want to ask or you want to get more connected, you want to meet some of the staff, kind of hear a little bit about our story, we want to invite you. It's less than 30 minutes long. Um, We have coffee, and it's going to be right over here immediately following the service. We encourage you to come. It's a great chance to get greater, uh, get connected in a greater way here at Prodigal Church. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 17, very familiar story. Read verse 48, it says this. As the Philistines moved closer to attack him, as the Philistine, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him, reaching into his bag, And taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. So David was good with a sling and a stone. Why? Because he practiced with a sling and a stone. Because what else are you going to do when you're hanging out with sheep all day, right? Uh, You just practice. It took repetition after repetition to be so accurate with that sling and stone. Now, my son Dex has been really into bottle flipping videos lately. Um, (laughs) And we have uh, taken it to the next level. We're not just watching bottle flipping videos. Now, we're going to actual playgrounds and parks, and we're recording him doing bottle flips, okay? If there's a bottle anywhere— Uh, he will grab it and try and flip it. And bottle flip after bottle flip, much like David and his sling. And so to illustrate this aspect of King David, uh, I want to invite out my son to demonstrate with his bottle. Come on up, Dex. Come on up, buddy. happen there. Great job, Dex. Great job. Money. Money shot. That was awesome. Now, David hit Goliath right where he was aiming because he had done it so many times. See, in ancient warfare, there were three types of warriors. And by the way, before uh, I kind of dive into this, uh, Malcolm Gladwell in his book, David and Goliath, um, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants, was extremely helpful and insightful in learning this. His book will be on the screens right here. Um, Feel free to check it out, but super, super insightful in re-looking at this famous story. But there were three types of ancient warriors. The first was cavalry. They were on horses or chariots. Uh, Then there was heavy infantry, which uh, were foot soldiers, often wearing armor. This is what Goliath was. He was a a heavy infantryman. Then there were artillery, artillery, and they were archers and slingers. Sling was a leather pouch with two leather bands, and a stone was placed in it. Here's a picture of a sling, and it was whirled around and flung at its target. And this is important. It was this... It wasn't this, okay? It wasn't a toy. It was a weapon. It was a deadly weapon. Uh, It's a devastating weapon. When a stone is released this way, it can travel over 100 miles per hour, faster than uh, 
a famous baseball pitcher. More than that, the stones in the Valley of Elah were not normal rocks. They were uh, barium sulfate, which are rocks twice the density of normal stones. If you do the calculations on the ballistics of the stopping power of a rock launched from a sling, uh, it is roughly equivalent to a 45-millimeter handgun. So, and we know from historical records that experienced slingers could maim or kill a target two football fields away from them. Uh, from medieval tapestries, we know that slingers could hit birds in flight. In ancient warfare, you'll find time and time again that slingers were the decisive factor battle after battle. And so when David flung that stone at Goliath, he had every intention and every expectation that it was going to hit exactly where he was aiming. Why? Because what else are you going to do in a field all day when you're hanging with sheep? You're going you're to start flinging some stones, and you're going to get pretty good at it. Now, we often think to do what David did in slaying the giant, we think, oh, well, I've got to step into something that's completely outlandish and ridiculous, something that I've never done before. And we never think that perhaps God is calling us to step into something he's been training us for our entire lives. So this morning, with this famous story of David and Goliath, we're going to do two things. We're going to retell the story. Um, using not only uh, the biblical text, but also Jewish folklore and what the rabbis say about this story. And we're going to look at some of the aspects of the story and see how we can apply this story that happened 3,000 years ago to our lives here and now. So first, the story, which is found in 1 Samuel chapter 17. It's a very long story, very deliberately paced. It draws us in slowly to the point of high tension, and then it resolves that tension quickly with the killing of Goliath. So the first section is verses 1 through 11. It's called The Challenge. And it's here we're introduced to Goliath by the narrator. And he spends about half of his time talking about Goliath's armor. Okay? Uh, he's painting the picture of this, the impossibility of the task. Goliath is unbeatable. And the Israelites are terrified and they're deeply shaken by this challenge. Then enter David, right? David shows up on the scene, verses 12 through 39. In this section, it describes David as a shepherd and going to bring a sack lunch to his three older brothers who are on the front lines of this battle. And as he goes, he just so happens to be the exact moment that Goliath is walking out from his battle lines. And this doesn't sit right. He's taunting the God of Israel. He's taunting the army of Israel. And David doesn't like this one bit. Uh, something must be done. He's going to fight them. So he goes before the king and he tells the king, I can fight. And then David, he kind of uses this as a defense. He says, the Lord has delivered me from lions. He's delivered me from bears. And he will deliver me from the giants. <laughs> Who knew David was a football fan 3,000 years ago? So Saul then, King Saul attempts to put his armor on King David and uh, it doesn't fit. But according to Jewish folklore, this is a beautiful insight, the armor fit perfect on King David. And he looked royal and mighty. But he said, no, I must not. So as to diminish the jealousy of Saul, he says, I'll fight as a shepherd. He didn't want people to see him in the armor of the king defeating the giant. It was a way of honoring Saul. Then the fight, verses 40 through 50. David leaves behind the king's armor, and he has a staff, a sling, a shepherd's pouch. Hardly enough to kill a dog, yet a giant. 
And then Goliath talks some trash. He says, I'm going to feed your carcass to the birds of the air. Then Goliath looks up at David, and as he looks up at David, there's a little, little spot that David saw above his helmet, exposed his head, launches the stone, and nails it between the eyes. Then the text says this, that Goliath fell forward. That doesn't make any sense if you know anything about physics, right? You are struck right between the eyes. At that velocity, you fall backwards. Um, but Jewish tradition, rabbinic tradition, says that an angel shows up and pushes him on to fall on his mouth because he was bad-mouthing the Lord. goes on to say that David did not know how to take off the armor of Goliath. And another Jewish tradition says that uh, Uriah the Hittite says, I know how to take off the armor. I only ask one thing, that you find a wife for me someday. And David said, I will. And he tells David how to take off the armor, which he does. And not long after, Uriah marries Bathsheba. Then David cuts off the head of the giant. We leave this part out when we tell our kids this story. Uh, and uh, Israel charges the Philistine territory, and the rest, they say, is history. So there's so much we can apply to our lives. Uh, but to understand this story, it's best to understand other dominant stories in that period of time. A story very similar to David and Goliath appears in the Iliad. Uh, the Iliad was written by Homer, one of the greatest literary works of all time. And... Uh, the young Nestor fights and conquers the giant uh, Eurythilion. And you're familiar with, with uh, the Iliad because you know the story of Troy, right? And the Trojan horse and Achilles and Hector. I think we have a historical rendering of what Achilles and Hector look like um, right there. <laughs> One of the accounts in the Iliad is the Greek Trojan War, right? The contest of champions. Achilles versus Hector. In the ancient world, it's a very dangerous place. A broken foot could kill you in the ancient world. It was a violent place. And so kings would first negotiate before they did battle. Because no matter when you fight a large battle like that, there's going to be lots of deaths on both sides. So they had this, this, this in place, this contest of champions. It's an actual genre of literature in the ancient world, this contest of champions where you get your best warrior, and we get our best warrior, and then they'll go out and fight, and whoever wins will then be the dominant power, and the loser submits their entire army and resources to them. It was a way to save lives. And Achilles and Hector is the chief of all of these narratives. And the David and Goliath account is a commentary on the contest of champion stories surrounding the time. But it's very unique. It's a very unique account in the Hebrew Bible because the story goes into great detail. And uh, in, in this story, God is using the literature of the Greeks in rewriting the story. The similarities between the accounts are striking, but what's more important are the differences between them. The difference between this contest of champions that we see in the Bible and the contest of champion tales that surrounded the people of Israel in the ancient world. The Bible actually does this a lot. It, it, it's used to confront the dominant story of the time. The concept in advertising is called bricolage, okay? Bricolage. Bricolage is this. It's when you take an existing brand, idea, or symbol, and uh, they're recognizable, 
and you tweak it just enough to actually subvert its actual meaning. Okay? It's, it's difficult to understand, but let me give you a couple of examples. Here's uh, an Adidas version of bricolage. What's it say? It says, uh, sporting the human, supporting the human rights abuses of the World Cup 2022. See, uh, it looks enough like the Adidas logo, but it rebukes the company that's doing nothing about the trafficking that happens around all of the World Cup events. Uh, it's the opposite. That's bricolage. Here's another one. Here's an iTunes one. Um, this one says, everything is under control. Ours. And the headphones are... It, it's the Apple. It's the iTunes. It looks the same, but it actually subverts that ad and subverts it the, in the opposite way. Uh, this is what is happening with the David and Goliath story. See, in the Iliad, Hector and Achilles are heroes. They're phenoms. Achilles was a half-god. They were legends. They had unbelievable armor. They had unbelievable weapons. And in the Hebrew account, it's a shepherd armed with just a sling and stones. And he defeats a real champion. This would have been hilarious to the ancient world. God's doing bricolage. Look at verse 42. It says this. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. If you try and fight Goliath on his terms, you'll lose. See, this is not just a battle between David and Goliath. It's a battle between their gods. This story confronts the false gods of the ancient world. The other gods want everyone to fight. Our God fights for us. This is a God who wants to fight our battles for us. It's his strength, not ours. Our God's different than all the other gods of the ancient world. Now, the story takes on a whole new shape when you line it up against the dominant stories of it, the day which I believe is the major reason why the story was written. Now, this observation, it doesn't change the story at all. Rather, it illuminates the distinctiveness of our God among the dominant stories of the time. And just so you know, Jesus is still subverting the dominant stories of our day. What's the dominant stories of our day? Here's one. Get yours. Take care of you above all else. Money, success, desires, Get yours. If it feels good, do it. And Jesus teaches us to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The world says, be selfish. Jesus says, be selfless. The world says, get revenge. Jesus says, forgive. The world says, love money. Jesus says, love people. The world says, take. Jesus says, give. You see, God is still in the business of subverting the dominant stories in our world. Just like he was 3,000 years ago with David and Goliath in the contest of champions. So what's the story mean for us? Four things, and we're going to run through them pretty quick. Number one, intimidation leads to immobilization. Okay? The Israel ar army had fear because there was a giant before them, and it caused them not to move. Uh, it, they, were, they were paralyzed in fear. Look at 1 Peter. It says this, Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. He prowls around. Lions paralyze their prey with a roar. They freeze. The prey freezes, and it makes them all the more vulnerable to attack. 
Nikita Khrushchev, who was uh, a famous Russian leader uh, following Joseph Stalin. He was actually one of the lieutenants under Joseph Stalin. Joseph Stalin was terrible. He was a terrible dictator who did atrocities across the world and atrocities to his own people. And when Stalin finally died, Nikita Khrushchev is standing before a throng of reporters, and someone asked him, why didn't you do anything under Stalin? Why didn't you stand up for, the, for your people under Joseph Stalin? And immediately Nikita Khrushchev goes, who said that? And everybody froze. And he said, that is why I did nothing. Because of fear. Because of fear. What are you afraid of that's keeping you from moving? The Israelites were stuck. That giant on the other side of the battle lines froze him. Um, this is a picture of some fog, something we're familiar with and going to be getting more familiar with in the upcoming weeks and months. But a dense fog covering seven city blocks to a depth of 100 feet, if you were to condense it into water, it wouldn't even fill a drinking glass. Like fog, our worries and fears can thoroughly block our vision but in the final analysis, they've got little substance. The things that you're afraid of, they might be scary, but God is on your side. They're nothing compared to our God. Look at number two. It says this, David went to the battlefield out of service and obedience. It was there that the opportunity arose to confront the giant. David didn't know he was going to go conquer the giant and then go viral because of it. No, he went to the battlefield that evening to serve his brothers, to serve his family. David was simply doing what he always did. He was just being faithful. And then God provided an opportunity for something great to happen. What does this mean for us? It's in the everyday where we need to be faithful. Faithful with little things. David was just doing what he should be doing. So in what ways should you just continue to do what you should be doing. What ways are you being obedient and you need to continue to do so? In what ways do you need to continue staying faithful? You may just see God open up a door for a supernatural intervention, for an amazing opportunity. Number three, we don't see as things as the way they are. We see things the way we are. Saul and his army only saw the problem. David saw God big enough to overcome the problem. Are you spending all your time focusing on the problem? If we were to lift our gaze from the problem to our God, it puts things in a better perspective. Your behavior is a reflection of what you believe. You may say that God is big enough to take care of the situation, but if you keep worrying about it and having anxiety about it and keep taking things into your own hands, your behavior is a reflection of what you actually believe. You don't really believe God's big enough to take care of it because you're worrying about it. We may say God is holy, but do we live our lives like God is holy? Number four, don't pray and do nothing. Pray and do something. For time's sake, we'll skip the passage of Scripture. But it tells us that, that the Israelites every day got and formed their battle lines, and then Goliath would come out, and they would retreat. Why does Israel keep marching out there like dude's not going to be there? 
Why do they get all riled up? They get in their battle lines, their formations, and they're like, we're going to get them today. We're going to get them today. Then Goliath comes out, and they go, okay, we're going to go. Why? I think it's because of this. I think that each day when they left the battle, they interceded, and they prayed, God, deliver us from the Goliath. Deliver us from the Philistines. And they spent all night, half the night, praying that God would intervene and the battle would be God's. And every morning they showed up excited that this Philistine giant wasn't going to walk out there. And every day he did, disappointed. Sometimes God wants you to be the answer to your prayers. Don't just line up and pray and do everything. And then, and then you get there and you don't walk and go. You don't step forward in faith. We stay at the battle lines. We've prayed, but we're not doing anything about it. We're just standing there. We're getting all riled up. Israel kept praying for God to do something, yet they didn't do anything. The Israelites are praying, God, we trust you, but they're doing nothing to act on that trust. Is that us? You're standing on the battle line just hanging out. Just because you're standing on the battle line doesn't make you a warrior. Fighting does. Be the answer to your own prayer. You might be praying, Lord, draw me close to you. It's not magic. Go and love somebody who's going through some stuff right now. Get involved in one of our small groups. Be the answer to your own prayers. Lord, this person that I care about so much, help them find you. They've been looking for you in all the wrong places. Invite them to church. Be Jesus to them. Share Jesus to them. Be the answer to your own prayers. I want to invite Noah and the band to come up, and we'll close with a song. In the Old Testament, we find lots of different Christ types. Christ types. They're, they're people who are a portrait, a picture of Jesus. Years and hundreds and thousands of years before Jesus, but they point to the salvation that we find in Christ. They're, they're a Christ type. We see it in Joseph. We see it in Moses. We see it in Daniel. And we see it in David. Now, in this story, we often picture ourselves as David. You're not David in this story. Jesus is. So it's not time to armor up, and it's not time to ammo up. It's time to wake up to the reality that our God entered the battlefield and is big enough to slay our giants for us. That's what Jesus does. He steps into our lives, into our world, into our scenes, into our issues, into our struggles, and he is strong enough to deliver us. We're not David. Jesus is. And we need to wake up to that reality. God, I pray that, that we become more like you in this, Jesus. That, that we don't rely on our own strength, that we rely on you. God, I pray that, that for the ways in which we've just stood on the sidelines waiting for something supernatural to happen, and God, you're calling us to the front lines. You're calling us to the battlefield. You're calling us to take that step of faith. Yes, to pray and to leave it in your hands, but also to leave the, comf the, the, the comfortable nature of our side and step out and be vulnerable on the battlefield. God, we pray that you would be our rock and our strength and our salvation and that, that we would be faithful in the little things and see you bring about great victory. So God, we pray that in Jesus' name.
May it be so. Thank you, God, that you're still confronting the dominant stories and the dominant lies that the world is telling us, and you're telling us something better, and you're calling us towards something greater. And so, God, fill us up so that we can pour you out. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we declare these things to the Lord?